a married couple is found murdered in their home. It was a real whodunit. There were no signs of any forced entry into the house, no sign of an untidy search or a burglary gone wrong. The first set of clues is the unique set of wounds left by the killer. This begins to take on more of a tone of an execution, of a planned attack, rather than something that was frenzied and on the spur of the moment. What danger is this man to the wider public? The view of this forensic psychologist was, it's not a question of if he will kill again, it's a question of when. A deep search uncovers a chilling document. On this piece of paper was like a stick man, head, torso, arms, legs. And then there were little marks indicating what we thought would be where you strike a person. Take that diagram and those points on the body and overlay them the wound patterns. They're identical. The victim is a man with secrets and enemies. Because Dad was in the police, you think it's somebody that Dad might have helped put away with the police. Someone who's got a big grudge against Dad. But then why would they have killed Joe? And a prime suspect with a seemingly watertight alibi. Well, we just didn't wake up. And we're on our way off. So we're like that off to... It is the stuff of Hollywood, isn't it? It really is, you know, American psychopath. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from people who were involved. Victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, we'll be going right to the heart of each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to escape justice. If you want to see evidence from each inquiry, watch video clips or read more, just subscribe to the Behind the Crimes site. And please do rate and review our podcast. A word of warning, this is a true crime podcast. It's for grown-ups. There may be descriptions which are affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is Fantasy to Kill. We begin this case on Tuesday the 7th of December 2004 and we're with a police force's leading detective. My name is Paul Howlett. A few years ago now, I was Detective Chief Superintendent Paul Howlett, head of Wiltshire CID. Wiltshire, as crime goes, is a pretty quiet place. If you're from abroad, this is the home of Stonehenge and Avebury Standing Stones. It's England's ground zero for crop circles, druids and pagans. Every force has its challenges, but in 2004, Wiltshire was in the top two of force areas with the lowest levels of violent crime in England. Homicide was extremely rare. Now, this is the backdrop to the appalling news that Paul Howlett received early on December the 7th. I wasn't on call, but my phone went off, I can't remember now, about six o'clock in the morning. And one thing certain is that when the phone rings at six o'clock in the morning, it's not going to be good news. And uh, the guy who had been on CID call called me and said, we've got a double murder. This looks different. I think you better come. So uh, I got up, got dressed, jumped in the car and drove from home down to Melksham. You said Melksham there. I need you to paint a picture of Melksham. What's it like? Uh, 
I, in a way that's not intended to be an insult, it's an unremarkable town. It's at the centre of a rural area, several supermarkets and shops. It's got a small railway station. There is nothing extraordinary, I would say, about Melksham. And in particular, where this crime took place was a very, very small residential area on the outskirts of the town. It's not a hot spot uh, for crime. I think from memory there'd been no more than six burglaries in the previous months in Melksham. So this was truly extraordinary. And what did you learn as you were heading over to Melksham about what had happened? The very brief brief I received was that this young lad had come home having attended a concert in London with his friends in the early hours of the morning and discovered his mum and dad had been murdered upstairs in the house. Uh, Obviously, the young lad was described as being desolate, extremely upset, um, and it was a real whodunit. There were no signs of any forced entry into the house, no sign of an untidy search or a burglary gone wrong. Um, It had all the hallmarks of being a real whodunit in terms of who was responsible for this terrible crime. The son had been 100 miles away from home with friends for nearly the whole of the previous day. He was called Michael Clark. He was a 20-year-old bank worker. Now, formal identification hadn't happened yet, but it was clear the victims were his parents. Joan Clark, who was 56, she was a retired childminder. During the week, she did some occasional light cleaning work at people's homes in the town. Her husband was Roy. He was older, 70 years old. And Paul Howlett quickly realised he was investigating the death of one of his own. One of the early pieces of information was that Roy Clark used to be a police officer a few years ago. Um, And then he went on to be a traffic warden in Devizes and then I think a security guard in a store in in Melksham. Um, He He made his name as a parking officer, didn't he, as a traffic warden? I think there was a story about him giving a crate of vegetables a parking ticket. The crate of vegetables story kind of sums Roy Clark up. He was well known for being a stickler for the rules. He'd retired from the police after 28 years, but he loved to wear a uniform and became a traffic warden. Someone in the town insisted on leaving a crate of vegetables in a parking spot and Roy Clark had given the box the ticket. He even appeared in the local newspaper about the story. He was quite straight down the line, wasn't he, I think? He was an ex-PTI in the services. He was described as taking immense pride in his appearance, a stickler for discipline. Um, Not necessarily everybody's cup of tea. Um, And Joan was his third wife. Um, She was described as being a, a lovely woman. He had children from a previous marriage. And they were described mainly as being doting parents. What do you learn about what's actually happened? By the time I arrived, the house is cordoned off. Contrary to what you see in television documentaries, uh, I didn't go straight into the house and then five minutes later I wasn't in the pub with a detective sergeant talking about the case. Um, I wouldn't, I didn't go straight in and when I did eventually go in, I was what we call suited and booted. So I had the forensic suit on, I didn't want to contaminate the scene. By then the footplates were down on the floor so I could walk around the house um, Dad was at the top of the stairs, part in a bedroom, part in the hallway. Um, Mum was in an upstairs bedroom. One of the things that stuck out straight away about Dad was he was wearing his shoes. One of the things that Roy was fastidious about, if you come in my house, you take off your shoes and you leave them at the front door. The fact that he was wearing his shoes suggested there must have been something calamitous for him to have rushed upstairs with his shoes on. So it was little things like this that we began to pick out. But more calamitous than that, it's the nature of the injuries. What was the, uh, what were the extent of them? And, and this was a, I mean, it was a proper bloodbath, wasn't it? So um, I think father had 17 stab wounds and I think mother 16. Now... Again, to a layperson, if you say a body has 17 stab wounds, then 
it might be quite natural to think that this was a frenzied killing. But then you've got a second body with 16 stab wounds. Crikey, that was really frenzied. But then when you get deeper into the case and realise that the, stab, the pattern of stab wounds are identical, this begins to take on more of a tone of an execution of a planned attack rather than something that was frenzied and on the spur of the moment. Police had to tell Roy's children from his previous marriages. My name is Sarah Leefield. Sarah was 38 at the time. She had a brother called Andrew, and both of them were nearly 20 years older than Michael, the son who still lived with Roy. Sarah was at work, as normal, when she started to understand something awful had happened. I used to work at a primary school as a dinner supervisor to help the children and play games with them and supervise them. I was in the lunch hall and the headmistress came in and asked me to go to my mother's, which was unusual. I said, it's all right, I've got 20 minutes left, I'll go when I finished. And she said, no, you need to go now. Thinking back, the police obviously told her what it was about. And I got there and there were two plain clothes people outside, you know, normal people in coats at mum's door. So I got out of the car, walked over and they invited me in and mum was sat there looking a bit solemn. Andrew came down, my brother, and we just sat there and they just said, are you the son and daughter of Milroy Patrick Glenville Clark? And we said yes. And they then told us what was um, what had happened the night before, that dad had been murdered and that was it really didn't really say anything i then had to drive home in utter shock i don't know how i got home i can't remember the drive home but i got home it's a bit surreal you it just passed in the haze sarah's half-brother michael clark was stunned at discovering his parents bodies very shocked somewhat withdrawn i think the difficult thing here is that People react to grief and stress in different ways. The murders were shocking, not just to Roy Clark's family, but the neighbourhood in this, as Paul Howlett calls it, unremarkable town. It was his job as the lead detective to dispassionately find the killer of this loving couple. I think it's important to say that my role in becoming the senior investigating officer is, I would liken it to being the conductor of an orchestra. And in this particular orchestra, I've got family liaison officers, I've got interview specialists, I've got crime scene analysts, I have an array of different specialisms and and colleagues who I can call upon to support the investigation. So I would pay my respects to Michael and meet him and express my condolences and introduce myself and explain my role But from thereafter, I would leave him with the specialist officers. The specialist officers included the family liaison officers, or FLOs. It's their job to be the link with relatives, but also to get information about people who've been murdered. They are a key part of this victimology. And it was clear that Roy Clark, the man who loved uniforms and rules, wasn't quite so strict when it came to his own personal life. Dad was married before he met Mum. Um, I don't know the reason they split up or anything, but I do know he had two boys. Um, He then went on to marry my mum, had myself and my brother, and behind our family lives, by all accounts, he was also going out with Joan, who had Michael eventually, and a few other ladies as well. He was quite a philanderer. Yes, Roy Clark had an incredibly complicated love life. He was capable of the most extraordinary deceits. Years before, he'd led a secret life which involved the birth of his son Michael, and murder detectives were just finding this out. He used to go for away for a couple of weeks at a time, and he used to tell us, oh, I'm going off on special ops with the police, or I'm going to Tenerife for the police again. And that's what he would tell us. And of course, as a young child, you would believe your dad. I don't know if... Mum knew what was going on and she just wanted to keep the family together. Um, But it all came to a head when the CSA came to Dad for his 
monetary contributions towards Michael, even though he was paying his way and supporting his other family. Um, Mum found out about it and chucked him out the house. Yes, the CSA, the Child Support Agency, procedure prompted Roy Clark to reveal to Sarah's mother the secret that he'd been having a long-term affair and had an eight-year-old son with Joan. He'd been keeping them in a caravan. It was only when his wife kicked him out that he married Joan and they moved into the Melksham house together. To begin with, it was quite that there was an atmosphere, I think, because of how it all came out and how devious Dad had been, how he treated Mum... One thing was clear. Michael Clark, the loved child from his secret lover, was the chosen one. But it didn't matter. Sarah and her brother welcomed him in. It's just a normal family, gradually accepting one another, for the better, I think. And we were all forming bonds. He seemed a bit shy, but then that's getting to know... I suppose his sister that he didn't really know about. I mean, I don't know if Dad and Joan had ever said you have a half-sister or a half-brother. My other brother was really close to him. I wouldn't have said he was worldly wise because he was, I would say he was mollycoddled, where they found things out for him, sorted him out, bought him things, looked after him. He wanted for nothing. Dad and Joan were besotted with him. They, if he asked for anything, they gave it to him. He wanted for nothing. He had the best room in the house for his bedroom. He had all the technology. Dad did an extension, and rather than Michael staying in the smaller room and Dad and Joan moving into the nice big bedroom, Michael moved into it. People can say, I, you could look at it and say, why was I not jealous? I wasn't, because it was a different family. That's an unusual backdrop for uh, an upstanding police officer, traffic warden, man of uniform, who appearances everything, to have that double life, to be able to live two lives, really. And, you know, you delve in deeper into the family. So Michael was born uh, with a hair lip and also had some other physical ailments as well. Um, And for his dad... Coming second was not an issue. You always had to be the best. So I'll I'll give you an example. Michael gets a job at a building society. And the week before he's due to start, his dad phones up, speaks to the manager and says, I want to understand what your dress code is because I don't want my son to foul up on day one. Now, I shudder to think what my kids would do if I did that to them. But it just goes to show how controlling and intrusive his dad was. Did you think there might be cheated husbands or something like that? This is why, you know, in, in our victimology, you know, a team working on this to understand Joan and Roy and their, their past and their backgrounds and identifying people who were close to them. In these early hours, Sarah Leefield had no idea how brutal her father's killing had been. But she had an inkling about who might have done it. Because Dad was in the police, you think it's somebody that Dad might have helped put away with the police. Someone who's got a big grudge against Dad. But then why would they have killed Joe? And you just don't know why, when, how... You know, who could do such a horrible crime? You know, Joan was very well thought of in the community. She was a very gentle woman and she used to be a childminder. And she was lovely. Dad was very well thought of because he used to help everybody around the community. So when it happened, it was a huge shock to everybody. Back at the murder scene, the orchestra, as Paul Howlett puts it, of his investigation was starting to play. And it was coming up with early clues. The fact that there was no forced entry, there was no evidence that this was a burglary or robbery gone wrong. Um, Mum was due to go to work as a cleaner, uh, she was due to be there at 9.30. There was a message from the lady whom she cleaned for saying, I'm just phoning to make sure Joan's all right. She's normally here by now. Yes, this piece of information is absolutely key. You have seven messages. This is the actual recording. Message one. There's only way I wonder if anything was wrong. 
Joan usually comes in Mondays, okay? Hope she, everything's okay. Let, let her get back to me, please. Bye-bye. Is there anything wrong, the message had said. Yes, appallingly so. But this message didn't just show detectives that Joan Clark had people who liked her. It gave them a time frame for her murder. Now, this was important because Joan was supposed to be at work at 9.30 uh, and didn't turn up. Michael said he left the house round about nine o'clock in the morning and mum and dad, according to him, were absolutely fine. So you're beginning to get this hypothesis that the murder must have taken place between 9 and 9.30. You then think about, well, there'll be mums and dads going to work, there'll be mums and dads taking kids to school, people walking their dogs, and very quickly, when we, you know, the, the outcome of the house-to-house inquiries was no one saw anything untoward. No one saw anything? No one heard anything? Nothing at all. So... A husband and wife who are in their 50s and I think he was 70 are stabbed in the morning and nobody heard a thing. Absolutely. And again, six burglaries in the previous months. Um, there were no precursor incidents to indicate that we had a serial killer on the loose because this, this, was, you know, this was the question being posed by the neighbours, the press everybody, you know, in this small, unremarkable Wiltshire town. Who killed Roy and Joan Clark and then seemed to just vanish? Any detective knows that when investigating a homicide, it's a good place to start with the person who last saw the victims alive, and this was Michael Clark. Detectives were starting to worry about Michael Clark. He was clearly in shock, but his actions were odd. One of the things that stuck out was... When the police arrived, he had gone to his neighbours looking for help. The neighbours called the police. When the first detective, the night duty DC, arrived at the neighbour's house to meet Michael, one of the first things Michael said to him was, I suppose you want to seize my property. What? A really bizarre thing to say. You know, you've, you've come home ostensibly found both your parents slaughtered you can understand people being dazed or you know people react to stress in different ways but to volunteer to empty your pockets because you probably want my property was quite a bizarre statement to make but a bizarre statement from a son in shock didn't make Michael a killer. There was absolutely no direct evidence against him. And anyway, what would his motive have been? Why would this slightly shy, mollycoddled bank worker want to murder his mum and dad? And he didn't have the opportunity. Remember, his friend had seen Michael with his parents alive at home at nine in the morning, and police believed this account. Michael and his friend left together to go to London to see a rock concert in Wembley. He had an alibi, didn't he? He had a recording of an alibi and he, had, he was with people most of the day. What was his account of that day? So um, his account was incredibly detailed. Uh, he was going to London the day before um, to see, I think it was Blink 182 at Wembley. I'm sure you've heard of them. Um, big band. So he had several phone calls in the morning, including with his girlfriend. Then he went into town, he came back with a mate, um, they then left the house, got a few hundred yards down the road and said to his mate, oh, I've forgotten something, I need to go back, you carry on, I'll catch you up, which is what he did. And then 10 or 15 minutes later, he met up that, with that friend and two other friends and they drove from um, Melksham to London. Along the way, they stopped at motorway services and there were also phone calls made home, which were the voice messages we recovered on the answer machine at home. Message two. This is the message. It's tough to make out, but he's saying they're passing the village of Laycock and he's telling his dad off for saying their route would take them past the town of Trowbridge. Hi, Dad, just me. Uh, we're all on the road, OK? Where are we, John? We're just in Laycock. 
The recording proved Michael was away for the day, and when police checked CCTV, he was seen at Reading Services on the M4 and at Wembley in London. Michael was questioned, but it was as a witness, not a suspect. One of the questions we asked was, if it wasn't Michael, who could it have been? And we we came up with criteria. Who had access to the house, either because they had a key or because they knew the family? Who was sufficiently skilled to inflict wounds in that way? And who might have a motive because they had some fallout with Roy in the past over a parking ticket or when he was a policeman? And we came up with a list of about 25 people. And what we did with each of these individuals is, where were you on that day, just before nine, until 9.30? So um, I was at work. Right, okay, where do you work? We go to your workplace. Was so-and-so at work that day? Yes. Uh, where were you? Um, I was driving up the motorway to meet my family, family visit. Have you got a mobile phone? Right, we want to check. Do the analysis on the phone. Yep, they were on the motorway at that time of day. So we alibied them uh, with at least, we said, at least two different sources to prove that they weren't in Melksham or at that house. And then did they have access? Did they have the opportunity did they have the skills? The only person who ticked all those boxes was Michael. And of course, the grave risk here was if we'd thrown up another individual who didn't have an alibi, did have access to the house, did have the skills, did have the grudge, we've got another suspect. Michael Clark was now front and centre of the inquiry, but without evidence he was questioned and released. All the neighbours said how nice Michael was. Michael and his father Roy were best friends, they said, really close. One thing people in the Berry Hill suburb of Melksham knew was that Michael Clark was not a killer. That night, when Michael Clark left the police station, he couldn't go home. It was still the scene of a live murder inquiry, so he went to his girlfriend's. One person who did go to Roy and Joan Clark's that evening was Paul Howlett, and he took with him an expert from the National Crime Agency. A forensic psychologist came along. Now, one of the things about Michael's bedroom was he had his weights and all his paraphernalia in there. Uh, My son at the time would have been probably in his... No, not quite as old as Michael. But I know now with the benefit of hindsight... Teenagers do not keep their bedrooms tidy. Michael's was absolutely immaculate, down to he had quite methodically placed his weight training gloves on his weights. There was not a single thing out of place in his bedroom. And then when the psychologist looked at the bookshelves, there were the books on forensics, police procedures, serial killers. The dustbins should have been emptied that morning, but because it was now sealed off of the crime scene, we had the opportunity to search the bins, and in the bins were some printouts on forensics. How do police estimate the time of death? What do police do with footprints? Um, And when you take this together, it's not direct evidence that Michael was responsible, but the view of this forensic psychologist was, If it is the case that this young man has killed both his parents in this manner, it's not a question of if he will kill again, it's a question of when. Of course, my original plan had been we will conduct a painstaking 
methodical investigation and if at the end of that journey we have sufficient evidence to arrest Michael, we will. Now I've got something of a dilemma because whilst I have this feeling of suspicion towards Michael, I know he's free and if he is the killer, this guy has told me it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Because he was going to stay with people, wasn't he, that night? He was going to stay with his girlfriend. Well, he was staying at his girlfriend's house. Michael Clark was a free man, and he was the prime suspect in a case where his parents had been killed in an almost clinical case of swordmanship murder. And Paul Howlett had just had the country's leading psychologist add his voice of warning. So what was that like, knowing that this guy, a psychologist, has said, he's a killer, he's going to kill again? In your gut, you feel that he's almost certainly killed both his parents in, a, in an execution-style killing, and he's staying with his girlfriends and her parents. Just because you have a gut feeling doesn't give you legitimate right to arrest someone. So it's very much a question of, okay, well, let's, uh, bear in mind, the psychologist said, if this person is responsible, he didn't say, crikey, this person did it. But when, when I sat down with the team and went through, come on, let's come up with the, the rationale. Is there sufficient cause to suspect? And we believe we passed that threshold. Henceforth, his arrest. So now this man, such an unlikely suspect in the eyes of family, friends and neighbours, was in custody. And Paul Howlett and the team started looking again at Michael Clark's story of the day before he found Roy and Joan dead. Detectives listened more closely to Michael's answering machine message. It just didn't feel right to Paul. Hi Dad, just me. Uh, we're all on the road OK. Where are we, John? We're just while we're just in Lake Ox. And we're on our way off, so we're right now off to... Uh, it just sounded as though he was trying too hard to make it sound like he was chatting to his dad. Um, it was it was bizarre. And then when they got to London, they met Stuart Painter, a friend of Michael's who was at university in Canterbury in Kent. Stuart Painter had been a friend of Michael Clark's for some years. He was a student living about 150 miles away from Melksham in Canterbury. He didn't have a ticket for the concert, but had arranged to come up from Kent to meet Michael, his friend, at Wembley beforehand. And their behaviour around the concert hall was strange. There was a bizarre episode where he says one of his shoes fell in the toilet bowl in the toilets at the Wembley Arena. And he had to go out and buy some new shoes. So... Basically, what, what we did was we had an interview team and a film crew and we said to Michael, we want you to reenact exactly what you did from the point you leave home to Wembley and come back. So the interview team, with his solicitor from memory, um, made that journey and they filmed everything. And there was this particular episode where allegedly... Michael was in a cubicle in the gents' toilet at Wembley and for some reason he'd taken his shoe off and it was lobbed into the cubicle between the gap between the ceiling and the side of the cubicle. Now, we had people, believe it or not, try a hundred times to try and see if they could recreate this and they couldn't and one of the other things was when we spoke to the security staff at Wembley Wembley they said these lads said can we use the toilets we well we're not open yet but yeah use the toilets they were so long that they were suspicious and actually went to check out what Painter and Clark were doing as they were leaving and I think Michael also discarded his jacket whilst he was in London. And again, you, you know, I've, I've spoken about the dangers of confirmation bias and attaching undue importance to things you learn along the way. 
but we were building this absolute catalogue of things that just didn't sound right. Remember, the murder weapon hadn't been found. Paul Howlett ordered the drains in the suburbs to be pumped. Nothing was discovered. Michael Clark had no blood on him. Surely he would if he were the murderer. Had he got rid of his bloody clothes in London? Detective search painter's student quarters and the route painter would have taken back to Canterbury, but they found nothing. But they had come up with more in Michael's bedroom. A methodical search of his bedroom and we have this quite stunning collection of martial art weapons. Yeah. I mean... Where were they? How were they arranged? What were they? So, open a drawer in a cupboard. They were... they. I, I can't remember the actual number, but it filled three boards, which we put on display to show. Uh, and we've got things from, like, Rambo-esque knives through to swords. Um, we've got martial art um, the sticks that Bruce Lee used. Nunchuckers? Nunchuckers. We've got the darts that you see thrown, the little star-shaped things in Kung Fu films. It is all in there because Michael was a black belt in a martial art. It was something his dad encouraged him to do. Michael was very proficient at this. And so we've got this vast array of weaponry and we've got a guy who is skilled in the use of knives. I'm looking at pictures of Clark's weaponry. There are dozens upon dozens of knives, swords, martial arts weapons, and it is as terrifying as it is extensive. Horrifically unbelievable that a 20-year-old bank worker would have all these just lying loose in his bedroom drawers. The search team in his bedroom found a small piece of paper, um, probably A5 size. And on this piece of paper was like a stick man, head, torso, arms, legs. And then there were little marks indicating what we thought would be where you strike a person. Take that diagram and those points on the body and overlay them the wound patterns on mum and dad they're identical identical and chilling if Paul Howlett's theories were right Michael Clark had planned his parents killing he'd even drawn a diagram of where he would stab his mum and dad just because he had a weapon, even the diagram, didn't actually prove he was his parents' killer. Another piece of circumstantial evidence was the thread of dark messages detectives found between Michael and Stuart online. It was a discussion between him and Painter where they fantasised about killing other people and even had a points-based system in terms of who they killed. Um, and I think one of the quotes from Michael was, if I were to kill, it would be perfect. Yeah. Emotionless calm, I yes. think, is a phrase he used. Absolutely. Way. And it's, it's just something else that you, 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 you put out there as being... I mean, this, this, this was just not healthy chat. The chat is incredibly dark. It reads like a warped manifesto to murder... Michael Clark had, it seems, a fantasy to kill. Clark talked of being on a mission, and he would have completed it had he not been such a perfectionist. I also remember from his leavings, uh, when he left school from his yearbook, someone joked about Hope Mike doesn't become a serial killer. You know, it's, it's, it's just... They say that truth is stranger than fiction, but... It, 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 there was just this overwhelming circumstantial evidence pointing at Michael. And we, we arrested Stuart Painter as well. Um, and, you know, it was there. there. There was no denying that there was this very dark, grisly, detailed discussion about killing other people. 
Scenes of crime officers were adding more to this weight of circumstantial evidence. There was also traces of blood in the sink, certainly the sink. Um, that, led, that tended to support the, the theory that the killer had then gone into the bathroom, washed themselves down and then left the house. Did he, Clark, have any sign of blood, any traces of blood on his hands? Or on him? But then if he showered, he wouldn't. No. And, and the other thing is this. It's very common, particularly in domestic murders, the, the offender takes a kitchen knife, carving knife, and stabs to death their partner. Very often what you will see is that the offender will have cuts on their hand because carving knives are meant to carve meat. And if you stab someone with a carving knife, the likelihood is your hand will slide down off the handle onto the blade and you will get a cut, which is why you see on the Rambo knives, you have the guard, don't you, which stops your hand sliding down. And Michael was an expert in a screamer, this Brazilian martial art, and using knives. So I, I wouldn't expect Michael to necessarily be heavily bloodstained. I wouldn't expect to see him with wounds on his hands. When you look at DNA, he lives in the house. His, you know, there's, there's, there's no advantage um, to be had from forensic evidence until. Um, after the initial crime scene examination, we kept the house for several days. And there's a substance called luminol, which when it comes into contact with blood, it fluoresces. There is a view held by some that luminol is carcinogenic and therefore not every forensic service provider will use luminol but the Met police do. We secured support from the Met and they came down and treated the carpet and the bathroom upstairs with luminol and lo and behold they revealed a bloody footprint. So a footprint made out of blood in the carpet, going into the bathroom. What did that footprint match with? What did it look like? Right, so straight away, great question. And one of the first questions I asked was, is it his shoe size? Well, unfortunately, uh, and we had an expert, because believe it or not, there are experts in footprints. And all they could say is, it is commensurate with the size of Michael's foot. It's not, I mean, and it, you know, any detective will tell you this is what you get from experts. It's a definite possible maybe. And there were possibilies and maybes coming from Clark's own account of when he discovered his parents. His story to Paul Howlett just smelt. Michael says he was dropped off by his mates and he went to the door and the first thing that was unusual was the front door was not locked. He goes inside, the television is on, and the lights are on, and in the kitchen, the microwave is operating, and there's this intermittent ding of the microwave. So he says he went inside, and then in the hallway was a glass of drink which he assumed his mum and dad had left out for him, which he drank. He went into the kitchen. He went to the loo and washed his hands. He went into the television room, where I say the television is on, um, and he listened to the voicemail messages. And by now, we're up to over five, six, seven minutes. He, he then says... He went upstairs and found his parents dead. We know from Michael and his friends that his dad, what time are you going to be home, Michael? Do you want me to pick you up? And invariably his dad would be up waiting for him when he got home. So the, and one of the voice messages, um, 
I think it's when he's leaving the concert, he's saying, oh, you're not there, uh, I wonder where you are, etc. Yeah, the concert's just finished, we're waiting in traffic, and it was absolutely amazing. I'm absolutely shattered. Are you shattered, John? Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm all really shattered. I am out of it. But, yes, what's mine? Anyway, I'll, I'm perfectly fine, and I'll see you later. Okay, well, I'll be back till late, it'll probably be, what time do you reckon we get back, John? Two? Um, well, it's yeah. well, depending, it'll be around two, so you'll be in bed, so uh, I'll see you in the morning. Okay, love you, bye. I'll see you in the morning, love you, bye. Words Michael Clark left for his father, words detectives believed he left knowing his dad would never hear them. Try and put yourself in his shoes. You're, you're a bit puzzled because you phone mum and dad and they're not there and you're not aware they're going out. The front door would normally be locked because dad is very security conscious. Uh, the lights are on, the television is on. My reaction would be, hello? Mum? Dad? Because I would be more, well, I, where are you? You know, why, why is the house like this? And I'm, I'm pretty confident that I would have been more preoccupied with locating mum and dad than I would have been about having a drink, going in the kitchen or listening to the voicemail messages. No direct evidence still, but the circumstantial evidence seemed overwhelming. But Michael Clark had his alibi. He last saw his parents alive at nine in the morning and he had a friend with him who vouched for this. Joan didn't answer her phone at 9.30 because detectives believed she was dead. But Michael Clark had a chink in his story. As he walked away from his house at nine with his friend, he said he'd forgotten something, and he returned home for just a few minutes. These were the only minutes in the entire day he was at home alone. And so you've got <clears throat> this narrow window just before nine to when Roy would have been taking his wife to work, roughly 15 minutes. Um, and we know that when Michael left his mate and ran back home, he was by himself for up to 10 or so minutes. Is that long enough to stab two people 17 times and 16 times? Police were working on the theory that in just 10 minutes, Michael Clark had stabbed his parents a total of 33 times. He'd partially cleaned up the scene, completely cleaned himself up, got changed, hidden the murder weapon and bloody clothes, possibly in a bag, which he then took with him when he ran off to meet his friends to go to a rock concert in just 10 minutes. Detectives had no direct proof. There was no so-called smoking gun piece of evidence like CCTV. But the circumstantial case was persuasive to the point of overwhelming. There were no other viable suspects. Michael Clark was charged with his parents' murder. Michael was detained at Melksham and um, I remember the decision was made and I spoke to the custody staff and, and normally it would be the custody sergeant that reads out the charge, um, etc. And the, in this particular case, the custody sergeant turned around to me and said, you do it. What was it like you personally being able to look him in the eye and say, I'm charging you with your parents' murder? Um, and how was he? How did he react? No reaction whatsoever. No reaction whatsoever. We, we can't assume how people will react in certain circumstances. But he showed no emotion whatsoever. None whatsoever. Now, you know, you, you, you probably anticipate, you know, even if he is the killer, remorse and tears. Conversely, if he's an innocent person him protesting his innocence. You got nothing. I could have been talking to a brick wall. Stuart Painter was charged with assisting an offender. The development of Michael being charged stunned his sister. Sarah Leefield, like the whole neighbourhood, knew police had got the wrong man. At any point had you thought, Michael, this is no. Michael? Didn't pass us because he was so well loved and he loved them. It didn't even pass our minds. Who did you think? Did you have any I prime suspect I thought it was something mind? to do with Dad's past history when he was in the police. That's all I could really put it down to. Because 
because of the stories Dad used to tell us of um, gangs and stuff he used to do deal with and um, drugs and goodness knows what, I don't know if it was real or if it was in Dad's imagination when he was going off on these holidays with Joan. But because that's what he had told us, you then think perhaps he's put, helped put somebody away and they've come back to get him. Sarah used to see Michael in prison to offer him support. We just used to go down, buy him a hot chocolate, some sweets, some crisps, and just chit-chat about anything and everything. Did he say, I didn't do it? He never once, when we were visiting on remand, say, I didn't do it. Did you ask him if he did it? No. I don't know if he'd have said, said a reply. We were just trying to make it easier for him while he was there. But you didn't think he did it? No, we had to, even though we'd been told by the flows they had the right person, and that's why he was on remand, and that's why they arrested him, you still, because he is your family, you still have to support. And you're there thinking, if he's done it, I'm not happy sort of thing. But you've got to support as the older sister in case he hasn't done it. Because if you then go through and say, well, you've done it, I'm not going to visit you, I've had it with you, blah, 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 and the the jury find him not guilty, you've then severed all ties with him. So you're in a bind, really, here, aren't you? It would be more than a year before the trial started at Bristol Crown Court. A year Sarah Leefield spent in disbelief that her half-brother could have killed his parents. Um, we then started, so we had the opening statement where he was obviously asked if he did it and he denied it and the crime put their prosecution forward, the defence put their thing forward and then the um, court case started. From where you were in the, in the victim support area you could actually see um, some of the pictures and stuff on the desks which were horrific. I hadn't realised what had actually happened until they started describing what Michael had done. How did uh, Clark come across in the, in the trial? He, again, was unemotive. You know, he was very quiet, withdrawn. There were no outbursts in the courtroom. The images Sarah had seen, combined with the evidence she was hearing for the first time, and her half-brother's performance in the dock meant she started to believe he was the killer. I think he thought he got away with it. He was, when he actually took the stand himself, obviously, to answer questions, he was intimidating, cocky, know-it-all. And this wasn't the Michael that I knew. Totally different Michael. It's just like he had a split personality at the time. Showing no remorse, no empathy, no nothing that he had just killed his parents. The trial was long by British standards, six weeks, but a stark contrast for how long it took the jury to make up its mind. They returned in just a few hours saying they'd made a decision. What's going through your mind at that moment? I'm thinking, I hope they find him guilty because of what I had heard, what I had made my mind up on. I would have been in the confines of the court and then you get the message, the jury's back. Sharp intake of breath, and we go in with counsel. And of course, you have this now very formal setting. And the formal of the jury is addressed by the court clerk, and you go through this. Just as you see on telly, have you reached a verdict? Yes. And uh, they, in response to this charge, how did the jury find, etc.? Guilty. And it's and it's it's difficult to describe. Because you've got to remember, someone's been murdered. It's the death of another human being. And yet, I guess one of the emotions is around validation. You know, it wasn't just my imagination. Uh, We weren't victims of confirmation vice. We've been thorough, we've been fair. And a jury of 12 agree with us. Um... I guess relief is another one. And, you know, we had Michael's sister in the court there, Sarah. Um, 
very mindful of the impact on her and how it feels for her as well. I felt all my energy had gone. I was in, you know, I was there thinking, oh, what's it going to be? I hope this, I hope that. And then all of a sudden, guilty, and it's just shock. I look, look at Michael, and he's just shrugging his shoulders. At this point, because he had claimed he hadn't done it, I would have thought he would have been screaming the place down that he was innocent, but he didn't. Michael didn't even glance at us. He just went out. Even when the verdict was announced, it was almost like a shrug of the shoulders, and then he retreated back down to the cells. There was no emotion whatsoever. The jury couldn't reach a verdict on Stuart Painter's charge of assisting an offender. He was cleared of the offence. Michael Clark, where he faced decades behind bars. And he was sentenced to life in prison, which is a default, with a minimum tariff of 28 years. But also to get out, he needs to pass probation, doesn't he? And he's not going to do that unless he says, I did it, which is something he's never done. When you think about what he did, executed his parents in that manner. And he's, he's never, as far as I'm aware, ever admitted any responsibility for, for you know, the murder of his parents. What do you think drove him? Why would he do this? I guess one of the challenges is for, for an individual to try and put themselves into the mindset of someone prepared to do that then their value sets, their paradigm and the world in which they live is just going to be so completely different to you or I that it's almost foolhardy to try to imagine. There was this conflicting picture of doting parents versus overly controlling, intrusive behaviour from the father. So was that the source? Was that the bone of contention? We never came up with a what we would call a precursor incident. So there was no big row beforehand, no big fallout. You know, when the friend went to the house with Michael immediately before their deaths, um, he didn't come away saying there was something wrong that morning or whatever. There was nothing that stood out. But Michael Clark, though, how unusual is he as a character who could seem like a normal, loving son in a 10-minute window, Samurai sword to death both his parents, then go to a pop concert and try to cover his tracks. It is the stuff of Hollywood, isn't it? It really is, you know, American psychopath, the stuff, stuff like this. He, he had all these martial arts skills, but it was only his parents that he used them on. You know, is there a case to argue that the only people who were potential victims of Michael Clark were his parents. His martial arts friends, still to this day, after he served 20 odd years nearly, cast huge doubt about whether he did it. The neighbors are still unsure that, you know, they don't know. And despite the overwhelming evidence about him and the way he behaved throughout, how unusual is that, do you think? I don't think it's unusual at all. I don't think it's uncommon for people to say, I never saw that person was capable of that degree of violence. I think, um, I think one of his former martial arts instructors um, said, I'd quite happily have him round for dinner with the family. And, you know, that, that is, I mean, I, that, that's that person's judgment. That's their experience of Michael. And who am I to gainsay that? Um, we all saw different sides of the same individual, but that's, I guess that's life, isn't it? Have you ever received any explanation from Michael? I had a letter from Michael about a year after he was imprisoned, and he said he would tell me one day why he's done it. I'm still waiting. I won't forgive him, but I would still like to know why he killed Dad and Joan. Only he knows why he killed them. 
He can't say it's spur of the moment because everything was planned down to the finest detail. The only thing that people have said to me was Dad and Joan had a timeshare. Michael was trying to arrange to go out there for his 21st birthday, I believe. And Dad said no. That's the only thing. that, that To my knowledge, that is the only time my Dad and Joan have said no to Michael. I've been told he's put in, been put into a lesser prison. Why? He committed a double murder. He should still be t- serving hard time. And he should stay in prison for the rest of his life. What would you say directly to Michael? I would just say to Michael, I'm still waiting. You promised me 20-odd years ago that you were going to tell me why you killed your dad and mother, my dad and stepmom. I'm still waiting. I think you're too chicken to tell the right the reason you actually did it. You're still trying to work out the correct way of saying things to get you off. Michael Clark will be first eligible for parole in 2032. He'll be 48 years old then. Perhaps by then he will have found the courage to tell his sister what prompted him to murder his parents. Paul Howlett retired from Wiltshire Police in 2011 and spent many years travelling the world advising companies about their security before retiring for a second time. This remains one of his biggest cases. If you want to see images of Michael Clark's extraordinary weaponry, hear more from Paul Howlett and Sarah Leefield, see video clips or get more details on this or our other cases, check out our Behind the Crimes website. Behind the Crimes is written, produced and presented by me, Robert Murphy.